This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Mark Nepo. Mark is a poet and philosopher who has taught in the fields of poetry and spirituality for over 35 years. As a cancer survivor, Mark devotes his writing and teaching to the journey of inner transformation and the life of relationship. A New York Times number one best-selling author, he has recorded eight audio projects and published 13 books, including The Book of Awakening, which made the list of Oprah's ultimate favorite things. What sounds true, Mark has created an eight-session audio program called Staying Awake, The Ordinary Art, where he offers reflections on how to sense and inhabit the place of true meeting, how to make sense of our experience and mystery of transformation, and how to give voice to our authenticity. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Mark and I spoke about what it might mean to take what he calls the exquisite risk. We talked about the two most important lessons he's learned from his journey with cancer and the role of effort and grace in our lives. We also talked about what it might mean to see with the eyes of the heart. Here's my intimate, warm, and very real conversation with Mark Nepo. Mark, in your work, you talk about, quote-unquote, staying awake. And you're also one of the featured presenters at Sounds True's Wake Up Festival that's happening this summer in Rocky Mountain National Park. And what I want to talk to you about is this idea of, quote-unquote, wakefulness, waking up, staying awake. What you mean by that term? Sure. I, you know, I, th- I think, and I've kind of um, evolved my understanding in a personal way, as we all do through my experience. And staying awake is has become, for me, much much more than just opening our eyes, but it's opening our heart and our mind and our sensitivity and our compassion. You know, I think being human beings, and the very term human being kind of captures it all because we're a walking paradox. You know, the the human is very finite, but the being is infinite. So we kind of walk around like lightning in a bottle, <laughs> you know, and I feel, at least my life experience has kind of taught me, that we're constantly opening and closing, dilating and constricting, becoming clear and confused. You know, we blink how many times a day? We inhale and exhale how many times a day? And and so staying awake is this process of not trying to arrive at some permanent state of enlightenment, which I just don't think is possible. But how do we move in and out as everything living does from 
being open to close. And, and mostly the staying awake is the practice, which everyone goes through, but is very personalized of how it's a practice of return. You know, we get hurt. It's instinctual to kind of close up, circle the wagons. But if we stay that way, we, we block out everything that can heal us, everything that matters. So how do we open again? That's part of staying awake. How do we open our minds after we've shut them down or pain has caused us to become rigid? Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that being wakeful, staying awake, it's not a destination. Because I think in the way many spiritual teachers present it, it does seem that there's this idea of you're going to have an awakening and then there's going to be some constant state that you're going to be in. But it seems like you're presenting this quite differently. Well, and I feel, you know, and I'm I'm not alone in this, you know, I think of the great Hindu teacher Ramana Maharshi who really spoke about, you know, he said enlightenment is simply, simply, <laughs> living without illusion. It doesn't remove the hardships of life. You know, we can have a moment of enlightenment and then trip taking the garbage out <laughs> and take it out on whatever's nearby. So, you know, it's how do we move through, you know, I think that's the other thing that life has taught me is that, you know, when I was young, and I think this is kind of normal, archetypal, I, you know, I, I so was in, uh, intoxicated with mystery and moments of of divinity and you know i wanted to transcend out of here you know and of course uh going through cancer in my 30s uh, the only place we transcend to is right back here so you know we really transcend paradoxically down into the isness the ground of things and how do we continue there. So I think that, you know, this notion very much tied up with staying awake is the notion of holding nothing back. And that's not just on a surface level of let's be passionate. But again, it's about how do we stay open? How do we stay vulnerable? Um, how do we stay malleable? Because every, you know, every crack from the inside is an opening from the outside. And, we're, and it's not easy, so we're challenged of how to help each other stay open and awake. You speak so beautifully, Mark, when you say things like that. Every crack on the inside is an opening from the outside. That's just so beautiful. <laughs> okay, now tell me more what you mean about holding nothing back. You're saying it's not just at the surface level of kind of spilling our guts. What do you mean by that phrase? That phrase seems to be important to you. Well, holding nothing back, and it, it really, I think, I became aware of this through my cancer journey. And because, uh, again, no, no, no amount of shutting down or uh, walling up or stealing myself worked to help me get to tomorrow. In fact, I had to be open the way a flag is in the wind. You know, I had to, uh, I'll give you an example, and then we'll circle back to what this really means, but about, what, it really was a teacher for me in how to deal with pain. And I had this kind of vision while I was going through a procedure, um, and it was an image of a tree falling into 
an iced over stream. And the tree shattered and the ice cracked. And then I had the same immediate scene replay itself, except it was springtime. And now the tree fell into the water. Even though it made a huge splash, the water flowed around it. And so that was an immediate instruction to me on how to meet pain and difficulty. To let it enter me, but to be soft enough to flow around it. So that softness, that movement of our being into the world without rigidity has a lot to do with the kind of holding nothing back that I'm talking about here. Okay, now I imagine even just hearing these three words, and even if somebody didn't know really the many layers of what it might mean to hold nothing back, immediately what can come up is some sense of, well, you know, I don't want to be hurt, rejected, pushed away. You know, if I were to hold less back, you know, I could be hurt in so many ways. I'm just Mm -hmm. not sure I'm really quite up for that, Mark. Well, and, and I think that this raises, I talk about paradox a lot because paradox, which is to me, how do we meet and hold when more than one thing is true at the same time? Paradox has been the great teacher for me. And here is, we touch on a paradox here right now. And I talk about this uh, in terms of the friction of being visible and the cost of being invisible. That, of course, as you raise, uh, as we meet things in the world, it hurts. Uh, We run into things. But we always have this choice, and there's no right or wrong way to go. Each, Each moment is a choice point a personalized choice point. So, you know, I don't want to be hurt and I may avoid outside contact or conflict or speaking my truth or showing up in order not to be hurt or rejected. But the cost of that on the inside after a time is corrosive. We start to muffle who we are. We start not to give enough space for the soul to breathe. And so there's a cost of being invisible. Now, the other way, when we choose to be visible, we in fact, um, we will meet conflict because we can't possibly please and meet everyone's expectations in life. And so now there will be the friction of being visible. And it might hurt, and it might be disappointing, and we might be rejected. But the cost, at least I have found, of that, while it can be painful, is nowhere near the cost of being corrosive. And and I can give you a very immediate (laughs) example. Please. That happened in a very simple small way just the other day for me. I belong to a gym here. My, my exercise at this point in life is swimming. I used, you know, I used to run. I used to do racquetball, and then some part of me didn't work, and then I ran for years, and then <laughs> something else didn't work. Now I swim, and I love swimming. 
But I, I get very cold easily because the chemo that I had years ago kind of, and you'll hear this from some cancer survivors, my thermostat, inner thermostat is like, for some reason, a few degrees lower. So I get really cold. Well, I, I bought this um, recently, like a modified wetsuit for pools. It's like a vest and a shorts so that it would keep me warm. So I go to the gym, and what happens this lifeguard, who's my age, I'm 60, he's probably in his 50s, he starts teasing me. It's like high school. He's teasing me because I'm wearing a wetsuit, that I'm a, I'm a sissy. So, you know, I kind of let this go. And then the next time I go, it happens again. So here we are. You know, do I just let this roll? Or do I get visible with my truth? So... The next time it happened, which was just the other few days ago, uh, I went up to him and I pulled him aside and I just said, you know, um, I'm a cancer survivor and the reason I do this, you know, and I thought this information would just, you know. Well, the guy continues to to really be, um, you know, awful. He says, well, yeah, you're colder. You keep telling yourself that. He's really like being like high schoolish, right? So I go swimming. He leaves. And I am feel, swimming and feeling the tension we just talked about. I'm feeling I need to take up space, not that I'm going to change this person's thinking, but that insensitivity sometimes needs to be met so that people who are insensitive know there are consequences. So I got out of the pool. I, tried to, I couldn't find him. He's gone. I found his name, I got his phone number, and I call him at home. And we have a pretty heated exchange on the phone. And this isn't something I do all the time, you know. So anyway, I'm sure that he, his thinking hasn't changed at all, but I felt if I didn't voice my truth, some part of me, wouldn't be okay going forward, and I would have been a little more hidden for some reason. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm imagining someone who's listening and is thinking of something in their life that they could see would be the next move for them to not hold back in some area, some conversation they might have with their partner or a friend or someone they work with. And you have this phrase, Mark, in your work, and you have so many beautiful phrases, and I'm going to bring many of them up in our conversation, at least I hope to. And one of them is this idea of taking what you call the exquisite risk. And I wonder if you can talk more about that phrase and speak directly to this person who might be like, well, I could have that conversation, whatever it might be. It might even be telling somebody something tremendously loving and positive that they've held back. It doesn't have to even be confrontational, but it just feels so scary. It's too big a risk. Well, and I think the thing that's so... Uh, amazing about this is that the things that we're scared of, what we're scared of often has already happened anyway. What do you mean by that? I don't get that. Well, it's like I'm afraid of being hurt or rejected, um, or I'm afraid what that's going to do to me, when the fact is often I've already felt the hurt and rejection. It's already happened, and I'm still here. I'm fine, but I'm worried about how that's going to impact me more, where that's going to run. You know, we run so much in our minds when the truth, uh, especially emotional truth, has often already have taken place, and we're still standing, we're still here. 
I think, you know, what, what I mean by the exquisite risk and, and what, what I would uh, say about this is that, and this is tied to holding nothing back, that we often are so close to the wonder that is around us constantly and the miracle of life. And it's natural in the same way that windows get dirt on them, that trees get moss, that you know, metal rusts, um, mildew. We get covered over by our experience and part of staying awake and part of holding nothing back and part of the exquisite risk is to wipe and clean away the window, to constantly be committed to removing as much as possible between us and life, which, yes, makes us vulnerable, but it also returns us to the unrepeatable miracle of being here completely. And the simplest way uh, most direct way, it's not always simple, the most direct way to return to this is taking the risk to be completely present in whatever moment you are in. And, and that's part of holding, no, holding, nothing, holding none of your attention back, holding none of your feelings back, holding none of, of whatever our questions are back. Because the exquisite risk is this repeatable threshold that often no one can even notice but us. You know, I could be with you at a party and I could be genuine or not and no one would ever know but me. So the risk that lets the extraordinary show itself in everything that's ordinary. And it very much is this sense of and I, and I guess one thing I would I would encourage anyone into our kind of imagined person we're talking to. I know for me, I often need to stop rehearsing my way through life. Mm-hmm. You know, we're so bright, we're so sophisticated, we're so educated in a pessimistic world that we are ready with answers, opinions, positions to meet almost anything. And often we judge how well we do in social situations by whether we have met what comes at us well rather than if we have genuinely entered it a moment such as that without um, having anything predetermined. You know, when I can, so, so, you know, dropping our think, our prepared thinking when we can and meeting things with, you know, it, it, the most wonderful thing I think anyone can say to me is, I don't know. Because then a friendship can begin. Because then I can say, you know, I don't know either. But let's compare notes. I want to take this a little further about somebody, this imagined person, stepping out but feeling afraid mm-hmm. of doing so. And you said, well, the, the emotional hurt's already happened. But the situation I'm imagining is a situation where I might be afraid of being rejected 
for some reason. So I haven't been rejected yet because I haven't come forward yet. You know, so well, here I am. I'm thinking about it. And so how can you help me get over my fear of rejection? Well, I think that, and, and, and thank you for that, because it helps me speak to this a little more clearly. What I mean by what's already happened is the sense that if, if I'm afraid to be who I am with you, whether we just met or whether we've known each other for years, it's because um, some part of me already knows that you may not accept who I am. So now we are faced, I am faced, with what good is the friendship if there's no space for me to be who I am. So if I curtail who I am to ensure that I won't be rejected, I've already been rejected. Now I got you. I've already rejected myself, you know. Um, I, and I used to do this years ago, and, you know, we all, you know, hopefully grow. Um, and, you know, I wasn't at a time when I wasn't very individuated, and I so, you know, wanted loyal friends and good friends. And, and I remember relationships where, you know, I would very much hesitate to bring all of who I am forward for fear that I would be rejected or I would be misunderstood and for fear that then that would change the relationship. And it took me a long time to realize just what we've been talking about, that, well, what, what kind of relationship is it if, if, if I have to tiptoe into narrow spaces to have the relationship? You know, I, 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 think, I, I think that I've learned that you know that people love you when they don't want you to stay the same, hmm. when they are committed to your growth. And the only way to find that out is to take this risk to show a little more of who you truly are. Even, even you know, I say somewhere... Uh, in one of my writings, I think it's in the Book of Waking, but even even if, it, you know, the great teachers are legendary in this, Nelson Mandela and Rosa Parks and Gandhi and Martin Luther King and, you know, whoever, you know, your heroes list is, but but we can do it just by saying which movie we want to go to within a group of people or which place we'd prefer to go to dinner. And this brings up the paradox of preferences, you know, I mean, in the Buddhist tradition and so many you know, the beautiful notion of, and I believe deeply that, you know, those are closest to joy who have no preferences. You know, I, I mean, after cancer, I don't care if it's raining. The only bad weather is no weather. <laughs> and the other side of the paradox of what we're talking about here is that for me to state who I am, it doesn't matter if we go to the movie I choose. But for who I am to be present through my particular humanity, that's important. So something I didn't quite understand when you were talking about the exquisite risk, and the risk is this risk to be fully in the moment, not rehearsing, but in this moment. What's so risky about being present? 
well, what's risky about being present aside from uh, being rejected by others? But what's risky, even if you're by yourself, what's risky about being present is that you will be changed, that life will not stay the same. Because if we truly bring who we are out and we drop our preconceptions and our opinions, we will be changed by what we encounter. And, and life will not be the same. And that's beautiful and scary. You know, Merton, Thomas Merton said, if we truly beheld each other, we would drop to our knees and worship each other. You know, if I truly uh, am in each moment, uh, you know, it's hard to stay, stay to my plans because I will be touched and moved. So it raises this notion like what is, you know, what is our true journey in life? Yes, it's fine to have plans and to uh, have goals and to work toward them. Now, let me give you an example. I have a story in my book of stories. It opens the book. It's a very short one about a cyclist who works and prepares months for this cycling race. And it's out in the country, and the day comes, and he's in the lead. He's ahead of everybody by quite a bit. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a great blue heron sweeps, wings spread, swoops right over his handlebars. And he... He's stunned. He stops, straddles his bike, because the path of the heron opened something he'd been chasing his whole life. And everybody else is catching up to him. And he stopped, and he's confused, and he ran into something he didn't expect. And now we fast forward, and the end of the story is years later. And every once in a while, he's asked, what? cost you the race and once in a while he'll look to the south and he'll say I didn't lose the race I left it hmm. and often when I tell that story a conversation will ensue about having to choose between winning the race and meeting the heron but the exquisite risk is that he was opened to being changed what he encountered so that actually the goal of his training and of cycling in this race, I would put, was not to win or finish the race. It was to meet the heron, which changed his life. And we do not know where our efforts will lead us if we're only limited to what we have in mind. And the only way to be open to that is taking this risk to meet what we encounter. Let me, can I, let me give you one other ancient example. Please. Um, and, and that is in the story of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is this wonderful, one of the oldest narratives we have, an Assyrian tale about an empty king who is not close to life, He's bored. He befriends um, a man who becomes his only friend in Kaidu, who was raised by animals, 
who is much closer to life. And so the board king decla- he declares uh, uh, war on nature, on the nature god. And in the war, his one friend is killed, and now he journeys to the god of that uh, culture, Utnapishtim, to ask for his friend to be brought to life. And he's told, uh, okay, you can go and find Utnapishtim, but there's going to be stones along the way that you will help you show how to get to Utnapishtim. He's going along, and he trips on these stones, and he gets all angry, and he smashes them. And now he gets to the ferryman a month later, and the guy says, Oh, I've been waiting for you. Where are the stones? The guy goes, The stones. And we often walk by in our anger, in our emptiness, in our determination. We walk by the very clues we're given to reach the Godhead that's in everything. It's beautiful. And, you know, especially when you talk about the idea of risking winning the race, you definitely have me shaking in my knees here about being in the present moment. Someone (laughs) who's very interested in winning. I know you said it was a paradox, so I'm just going to relax about it. Well, what's what's so interesting, and I've I've faced this too with, you know, so often, and this has happened with, and now I'm kind of expected, but when I was younger... I, every book I've written has not been the book I've started or imagined. Because where I think I'm going is often kindling for where spirit is leading me. Mm-hmm. And so often when we insist on our goals as we first imagine them, we walk right over the blessing. Right over the blessing. And, you know, I think that this is a very kind of natural thing. It's, it's kind of another, I mean, the, the exquisite risk kind of lives between effort and grace. We are all this, you know, I believe in effort. Uh, and I believe in effort because you never know when grace is going to appear. <laughs> was one of the very interesting parts of your program with Sounds True, Staying Awake, was when you were singing the praises of effort. And I really liked that because often, especially in spiritual teachings, there's a lot of emphasis on surrender and grace and and effort is kind of seen as an aspect of, quote unquote, your ego. You know, you're efforting, you're efforting. But you really see effort as having an important value. And I wonder if you can talk about that. Oh, yes. I love I love effort. And 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 that's an example of holding nothing back. You know, if I don't understand something, not to pretend that I'm sophisticated, I want to sweat to understand it. I want to, you know, I think, and, and I've learned that, you know, effort is putting our whole self in to whatever we're wanting to learn. You know, if I want to get to know you, I want to hold nothing back. It doesn't mean like I'm going to be, you know, uh, at your house every day. It means that when we're together, I'm truly trying to take you in. I'm truly trying to understand who you are and what makes you tick. And that means putting down some of my own opinions so that I can really hear you. And, and we all struggle struggle with this. But, you know, effort is um, an example in my youth of that I've looked back on of, 
effort, which really taught me is my father. My father loves, he's a master woodworker. He's now 91 and isn't able to really work very much anymore with wood. But he he made, uh, he loved sailboats and he made a, uh, when we were kids, he made a 30-foot sailboat. He built it, which we spent a lot of time growing up on. And he also um, made a lot of small wooden models to scale of great racing sailboats throughout history. And I remember sitting on the steps of our basement in this little little house in suburban Long Island, um, watching him work for hours on this incredible detail on these tiny little masts and rails and portholes. And what hit me even more, you know, we often think of effort as moving us toward excellence. But the immersion of effort allows us to participate in oneness. And that's more important than excellence. So while he made beautiful little models of boats, what I learned from watching him, I never saw him so completely in oneness. I don't think he'd even use this language as when I saw him an hour or two in working on these small boats and the effort and immersion allowed him. He wasn't just working on one boat. He was now in the moment of every boat that had ever been built. And he, for the moment, could feel that lineage. That's the reward for complete effort that I really long for and I think have had been blessed to have in moments, in moments. And then, you know, as from Hanabar, she said, then we trip on the garbage. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to SoundsTrue.com backslash free. That's SoundsTrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. There's this quote that I'll read now from the Staying Awake program that you say on the audio about will and surrender that I thought was really beautiful. I'll just read it and then you can comment on it. Will and surrender are paddles that steer the canoe we call the soul. The proper use of will is when we drift out of the current, we stroke a little to the left or to the right to get back into the center of the current that will take us. Yeah, and I, you know, that... um you know, thank you for lifting that that part up. I, you know, I do feel, and this is where I mean, I'm a student, as you know, of, of all traditions, and um, I, you know, really, uh, well, I really pursue that. But one of the things that I feel very close to Taoism for is the notion that the way, 
which, as you know, the Tao means just simply the way, the unnameable way of things, the current that's larger than any one living thing, the ocean of being, whatever we want to call it. And and so this works very nicely in, the, in this sense of, that's inherent to Taoism, and that's the sense that we are fish in that stream of life force. And so if you think of any fish, the purpose of will is not to conquer the stream or the current, not to bend the current, not to carve out riverbanks. The purpose of the will in a fish, and therefore in a fish of being, is to help us find the current. And in those moments when we are in it, now it it doesn't make any sense to ask under what power are we swimming, our own or the current, because it's all one. So I think the purpose of will is to return to alignment with everything greater than us. And this is very much and very, very important in terms of when we're ill. I mean, what I learned in uh, through my illness was that, you know, every tradition has different language, but basically wellness is when we are in alignment with everything larger than us, in alignment with the whole. And dis-ease is when we fall out of that current. We fall out of that stream. And then, and then yes, we need to paddle back in. But of course it's interesting, and I'm not trying to get too nuanced here, but if we find ourselves out of the stream, mightn't it be a situation where surrender is what's required at that point, not more effort? Maybe we're out of the flow because we're, you know, trying too hard in the wrong direction or something. Well, yeah, I think that, you know, what, what's this, uh, what I'm assuming when I speak about this stream, I'm not talking about streams of uh, conformity or streams of everybody else's thinking. I'm talking about when we, you know, there is an aliveness everywhere in the universe. And we each each of us is born with this aliveness. And much of our time on Earth is devoted to finding the, where we can live in concert with all aliveness. So the grace part is that we know when we line up and we're close to aliveness. We know when we're in the presence of aliveness that touches our own. And we know when we fall out of it. Often, and I think this speaks a lot in the, in the life of addictions, a lot of effort goes to keeping ourselves stubbornly away from the grace of aliveness. And this, this ties all into what we were talking about, the exquisite risk and holding nothing back. Because the effort, and this is paradoxical, but the, the effort to surrender <laughs> is the effort to, to rise above or, or sink below or to, to 
to drop all of our designs and simply accept our aliveness and trust it. I struggle with that. Everybody struggles with that. Um, I don't know. Is that making sense? Do you see that it is. It actually reminds me of another quote that I took from the audio program. And really, as I said, you have such beautiful and original language. I really appreciate it, Mark, deeply. Well, thank you. Here's the other quote. Wisdom is the result of faith. Faith is not the result of wisdom. I thought that was really interesting. Well, thank you. I, I you know, I, I think that, and and let me let me speak to um, the great um, Protestant theologian Paul Tillich. Um, he defined faith as an act of ultimate concern. I love that. An act of ultimate concern, not a conclusion. That faith, which is again an, an act of ultimate concern is another way to talk about holding nothing back. It's when we give our complete curiosity and wonder and heart to what's before us, and that opens the doorway to aliveness, which, if we walk down, will give us wisdom. And it's interesting that wisdom, and I, I explore this on the program as well, Wisdom, I have learned in the last few years, I've spent some time exploring this. Originally, the word sage was a verb and not a noun. And it meant to taste, hmm. not to know. To taste. So when, when we can enter into this relationship, this conversation with aliveness, it leads us to taste, to embody into a state of knowing as opposed to collecting knowledge, and that leads us to wisdom. I love that. The sage is the act of tasting. And, and it's also fascinating that the early use of sage, the first use of it when it became a noun, it appeared in, in Hindu culture, in Chinese culture, and in Greek What's interesting is that the seven uh, sages in Hindu culture were Vedic uh, poets, and they are anonymous. They are not named. They are those who were able to hear and praise the hymns of the universe. It's not till we get to Greek times and Socrates is the first one to actually name people as sages. He names the seven ancient sages of, of, of Greece. As soon as he does that, everybody starts arguing about why seven, why not ten? And you left out Harry. <laughs> and what happens? Everybody stops tasting, and they start arguing about who were the best wisdom tasters. Hmm. And we get away from direct experience. We get away from the exquisite risk. Now, Mark, I'm going to hold nothing back here and ask you a question that I want to ask you that feels a little risky for me related to your cancer journey. Sure. What I'm curious about is, you know, 
people often say things like, well, this person made it through because they changed this part of their belief system, and that's why they lived through this terrible disease they weren't supposed to live through. And what I'm curious about is what do you make of the fact that you recovered? Do you think it's because you had these great spiritual discoveries? Do you think it was just you were lucky, chance? I mean, what do you make of it? Well, yeah, and thank you for asking the question, um, which I'm happy to explore. Um, and You know, it was a very profound journey for me, and, and, and this is what really has led me the doorway to all of my work in the last, really, 20, 24 years. Um, I was, I'm 60, I was 36 um, when I went through this. So it was a three-year kind of intense period of surgeries and chemo. But, you know, I, I feel deeply that I was raised Jewish, um, and I went into this journey, and I was blessed that everyone I met was kind enough to offer something to me. I had Sufis who I never met pray for me. I had my brother tried to design a macrobiotic diet, which was awful, but I did it. You know, it tasted awful. And, you know, I had a, a friend who was a priest. He wanted to lay hands on me. I, I found suddenly, you know what, um, these things didn't require conversation or thought. I said to him, when, where, and how many times would you like to do it? Thank you. I didn't need to discern whether, well, I'm Jewish and he's a priest. Should I let him lay hands on my head? So arriving, being blessed to still be here, to be kind of thrown like out of the mouth of the of like Jonah, out of the mouth of the whale, two things became really clear to me, very clear. One was, I am not wise enough on this side to know what worked. And, you know, I have, and so from that point forward, I was challenged to believe in everything. And my challenge, which has led me, why I have been a student of all the spiritual traditions, is to find where they all meet in the middle. What is the common core that they all resonate from and how they manifest so many different beautiful ways for people to choose from. And I was constantly faced with people after I was still here who would come up to me and ask very much the question you asked, but with a hidden agenda. You know, everybody would want, you know, when I got sick, everybody wanted to blame it on their partial understanding of disease. It's what you ate, it's the car you drove, it's your sexuality, it's your lack of sexuality, it's your stubbornness, it's your lack of will. It's, you know, everybody wanted, you know, and when I was blessed to be well, so many people I met wanted me to corroborate their partial understanding of wellness. Oh, it was mind over matter, said the person who doesn't believe in God. Oh, it's Jesus. No, it's Moses. No, it was all the vegetables. It was the vitamins. It was your will to live. It was your will to surrender. And again, you know, I'm not wise enough to know. It led me into the unity 
and wholeness of life. And I feel, and let's use the analogy of spring. You know, there are thousands of different insects, each designed by nature to be attracted to different nectar, and they each carry a particular pollen and pollinate a particular plant. And they don't repeat themselves, but together they bring this miracle we call spring. Why not in the spiritual paths that human beings are open to? There are so many different paths because each of us is born with an attraction to one way that will pollinate our spirit. And no one person can hold it all. So the human spiritual notion of spring gives us just as many choices. So you said there were two things that you came to. And so the first one is that you just weren't wise enough to know what the factors were. And so that you welcomed all these different approaches, which I really appreciate. But what's the second one? The second is that I woke up on the other side of that journey of almost dying, and through no wisdom of my own, you know, I went into it in my 30s, believing in a heart view of the world, but I was still really very much in my head. And I woke up, and I was living lower. I was suddenly in my chest. And the image I like to use, it's like in early spring, in March or April, when the snow melts into the ground. It's like my understanding of life melted from my head into the ground of me. And from that point forward, my mind has served my heart and not the other way around. And that has helped me in in everything I've investigated and discovered and in living closer in my own journey with the exquisite risk. That's beautiful. You have a phrase, I wonder if you can unpack it for us, beginner's heart. Yeah. Well, you know, we often, we know, and I think we've heard about beginner's mind and the sense of, of dropping everything we know, either love or great suffering often prompts us to do that. And spiritual practice encourages us to do it without love or suffering being the catalyst, to drop what we know so we can see life freshly again, as if we just arrived. Well, beginner's mind um, helps us apprehend life freshly. But beginner's heart, I, you know, I believe, helps us embody life freshly. You know, it helps us stop watching and enter what's before us. You know, I I love, and maybe you know this, but, you know, and I've been out to Naropa uh, several times over the years, and I always was interested in what, uh, why the university was named Naropa. And I finally found someone who uh, who taught there who could tell me. And I love this story um, that Naropa, and you probably are aware of this, was um, 
in the 11th century was a renowned scholar, kind of like the Houston Smith of, of the 11th century India. Um, you know, just knew every nuance of spiritual practice in different sects and traditions. And he was walking uh, down the street one day, and an old woman crossed his path and stopped, pointed her finger at him and said, Are you Naropa? And, you know, he kind of puffed up, ready to give an autograph, and said, Why, yes, I am. And she looked at him, and she pointed her finger and said, do you know the heart of all those paths? And he felt somewhat affronted and taken by surprise, and he said, well, of course I do. And she kind of went, hmm. And they walked on uh, for a ways, and he, of course, knew that he lied. And he ran back in front of her and got down before her and said, be my teacher. And that Naropa represents embodied wisdom. And beginner's heart leads us, returns us through the exquisite risk, through holding nothing back, through effort and grace. It returns us every day, if need be, to the aliveness and the freshness of what it is to be here. We, we are the only creatures. We certainly can go astray and we can be encased in our, a cocoon of our own making, but we are the only creatures that can shed that cocoon more than once in a lifetime. Hmm. When you say that, that we can shed our cocoon, tell me more what you mean about that and how we're the only creatures who can do that. Well, because, you know, we are, uh, you know, in the life of a butterfly, okay, um, the cocoon is one stage of its life, it incubates, it forms, it breaks out of that cocoon and becomes a butterfly. We, as human beings, as spiritual creatures uh, encased in a body living on earth, we go through many lives in one lifetime. We go through many selves if, if we dare to grow, if we take the risks that are put before us. If when we suffer, we're not just broken, but broken open. If when we love, if we are loved and loving beyond our sense of ourselves, and we lose ourselves in a good way. So we have the opportunity to live many lives in one life. So the idea or the image of a butterfly is that more than once in our lifetime, we have a cocoon, we burst through it after we formed, we fly, and then we resurrect again. We go through the process again. I am not the same, though I'm the same soul, I'm not the same self five years ago, let alone 10, let alone 20, let alone before my cancer journey. Mm -hmm. I recognize those people as stages of me along the way. And the thing that we often do in our culture in the name of the blame game is in order to have security about who we are now, we often need to make false who we were before. And that's not helpful. 
you know, the cocoon for the butterfly, once the butterfly has emerged, the cocoon wasn't false. It just served its purpose. So who I was 10 years ago, even though I can look and find some embarrassing moments, that doesn't mean that I was false. I was true as far as I knew how to be and limited. And now I'm, I've grown and I'm truer and I have less limitations, but who I will be hopefully in five years from now will be less limited than I am now. You know, one thing I'm curious about, Mark, because I see this in the lives of people that I am close to, is that one of the things that keeps people from breaking through that cocoon and growing into a new phase of life again and again is this concern about, quote-unquote, leaving people behind, Mm. leaving people from a certain period of your life behind as you grow and change. And in the context of holding nothing back, I'm wondering what you can say about that. Well, I think that that's, you raise a very poignant and difficult um, aspect of growing, which, you know, archetypally is in all the stories of the great spiritual teachers. You know, uh, Buddha, uh, you know, we all, we kind of pass over that part of the story because there's so much amazing that happens once he leaves. But, you know, he was, he was groomed to be king. He was a prince. And he had to leave life as he knew it and embark on his own. And we often, you know, when we deify these people from the past, we often, I think, step over the intense humanity um, and how they had to face and the lessons in that uh, that, that that probably wasn't easy, that that was difficult. And, you know, for, for me, I think that what's very difficult, and we all have relationships and friendships, and that we grow in different directions, you know. Um, and I think that honoring the truth of who we are and who we become is one of the most difficult things that uh, that we have to face. Um but if you imagine that relationships, if you were to put two rowboats in the ocean and they were not tied together but just simply left there and you came back the next day, you would not expect them to be in the same exact place. If you came back in a month, they might not even be near each other. If you came back in a year, they might not even be visible to each other. So there's this very precarious uh, current of life that we have no control over. And this is, again, a paradox. The effort and commitment, I believe, in loyalty and devotion and, and commitment to people that we journey with. But there are times in everyone's life when, at the worst, who we are is kept down by the stubbornness or fear of someone close to us. And at the very best, who we are is that we grow to be who we are and one of us grows into a land creature and one into an amphibian or a water creature. And we can't really live that close to each other, though we may still love each other. 
So either way, these are difficult passages. You know, I think, you know, I think of my own journey with cancer, and um, you know, there were many people uh, from that time who helped me live. Who I am no longer in. Really, we're really not in each other's lives anymore because we we grew in different directions. It doesn't mean that they're not in my heart. It doesn't mean I don't know where their when their birthdays are. <laughs> I don't, you know, hear go to a jazz concert and know that they would have loved it because they love this person and feel that ache or that tug. But I think I think our obligation. And then let me tell you a story about not doing this. Um, I think our obligation is to be as true to the aliveness we are born with as we can be and support that in others and be as truthful as we can be when they collide and even um, crowd each other out. Um, and the story is, this is, a, this is a, a story from the New Hebrides in uh, Polynesian culture. And it's the story of how human beings lost the ability to be immortal. It was believed in early indigenous cultures that what gave human beings the ability to be immortal was that they could shed their skin. And when they stopped shedding their skin, they lost that ability. So the story is in this culture that Alta Marama, which literally means change skin of the world, and she was kind of the matriarchal mother of this tribe. She went to the river to shed her skin, as she had done many times. And as she shed her skin and felt the freshness of a new skin, she just looked over her shoulder and saw that her old skin caught on a branch, on a piece of driftwood, and at the moment she thought nothing of it. And she returned to her village where her teenage daughter saw her and was frightened because she didn't recognize her mother, who looked not much older than her, as a young, maybe in her 20s. And she comforted her that, yes, this is, I, it is still me. And the daughter was repulsed, was angry, and Ultimarama to appease and soothe the fear and anxiety of her daughter, went back to the river, found her old skin, and put it back on. And in the New Hebrides, it is said that from that day forward, human beings lost the ability to be immortal, which I take to mean not to live forever but to live as close to life as possible in any one moment. That's a wonderful ancient story because, like all archetypes, it captures we are all faced with this daily almost. Am I going to put on my old skin in order to avoid conflict with a loved one? Am I going to put on my old skin and keep my fresh aliveness from meeting the air because I want to appease their anxiety rather than help them through their anxiety. So we, there's no answer to this, but you raise a very poignant 
difficult. This is part of the practice of being human and how and why we need to compare notes and help each other because every generation, every life learns something more about how to do this. Now, Mark, I feel like I could talk to you for a long time. I feel like talking to you is a little bit like sitting next to a beautiful fireplace, a beautiful hearth. So, Mark, I just want to ask you two more questions. This first one is a bit personal. There's a quote I read from you that we're each born with a gift and an emptiness. And I'm curious, I'm sure you've reflected on, in your own life, what do you feel is your gift and what would you say is the emptiness? Yeah, and let me let me say, and I thank you, I, you know, I, when I talk about that, let me just say for a second that what you read there is something I've been exploring lately, and that is that we are each born with a gift and an emptiness, and we often are often try to push away the emptiness. We try to push it away and only focus on the gift when I think that one of our callings in life is for those two aspects of our soul to be in conversation with each other. So that if you imagine a hole dug out of the earth, unless you put the light of your gift in that hole, you cannot see the depths that the emptiness revealed. So before I speak about my gift and emptiness, as I think I know it, at least so far, <laughs> let me just say that the nature of emptiness, I'm sure you're aware of, is twofold here. There is the deep emptiness that is not empty, that all the traditions speak about, the Hindu and Buddhist traditions especially. The still center, you know, the center that holds everything, the quiet that's at the heart of silence, the bareness, if you will, the isness of things in which we are always held if we can quiet all the noise. That is the large emptiness that is not empty. There is the psychological emptiness that we all struggle with about our own worth, about our own contributing about our own um, mattering. Um, and so these two are very close to each other. And often when we can face our psychological emptiness, the bottom falls out, which from that position we think is terrible. But then it drops into this bareness that holds us. So, okay. So I, I think that my emptiness that I struggle with is that um, I, I think, you know, from an early age and growing up um, with, in, a, in a family that was kind of, you know, pretty critical and angry, um, and also a family that also supported my gift, but also made me feel this emptiness, or I nurtured it in myself as well, is, you know, I flash from being a mature person who's journeyed on earth for 60 years to being um, a little boy in a man's body, unsure uh, how to proceed. And so I think my emptiness is a, a trail or a, a psychological reflex that certainly has lessened over the years 
But I think, I don't think we ever get rid of, just like we don't get to enlightenment, a permanent state of enlightenment, I don't think we ever get rid of these things. I think they lessen, they right-size. When I fall into that little boy's space, I know it more quickly. I can come out of it in less time than 10 years ago. Uh, I can have the person I am. Uh, I'm. It's in me rather than me being in it. My gift is... Um, I think my gift is seeing the world through my heart. Um, and certainly you can see, as I think with everybody, the relationship between my gift and my emptiness is very important. Because if I am stuck in my little boy psychological emptiness, the only thing I can see through my heart is my fear and insecurity. I can't see everything else. So my gift helps turn my emptiness into the larger bareness of being. Now you can replace those particulars for me with your own, and anybody who was listening can. But this is, we don't eliminate these things. We build relationships with them. And that's at the core of being here. That's at the core of staying awake and holding nothing back and the practice of being human. And then, Mark, just to end our conversation, if you would be willing, I wonder if you could share with us whatever lines of poetry, of your poetry, occur to you that would be kind of a ribbon on our conversation. Sure. And actually, this is kind of amazing because um, I'm, I'm on a writing sabbatical now for the, these couple of months here. And I just wrote a poem last week called The Empty Necklace. So let me share that. Perfect. The Empty Necklace. We each have one made over a lifetime of the empty moments in between when everything is still and complete each a clear bead strung on the invisible chain of our experience i'm thinking of the long silence after we'd talked for months about what it's like to be alive or the time in winter when the snowy pines were creaking and swaying a hundred feet up like the eye of the earth opening slightly or the time in early fall when you were pinching a pot in the sun and our dog was chewing on a stick and I started to cry. And the moment I woke from surgery too soon and my soul had to decide which way to swim. And sometimes when the wind sweeps the next task from my mind, I am returned to the moment before I was born floating with a brief sense of all there is, just as I was ushered into the world with our need to find that feeling between us. Thank you, Mark, for a very intimate, beautiful, and heartwarming conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It was a joy for me, too. I think we could talk for hours. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) 
I've been speaking with Mark Nepo. He has created with Sounds True a new eight-session audio learning program called Staying Awake, The Ordinary Art. And it is filled with poetry, stories, teachings, metaphors. It's just gorgeous. Also, a two-session audio program called Holding Nothing Back, Essentials for an Authentic Life. Mark will also be with Sounds True and 20 other authors, artists, poets, musicians at Sounds True's very first Wake Up Festival, August 22nd through the 26th, 2012, at the YMCA of the Rockies in Estes Park. And if you want more information on the Wake Up Festival, you can visit soundstrue.com slash wakeup. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.